Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 043, um, ho- lecture on Homer's Iliad, book 13, part 2. And I had originally intended this to be a lecture on lines 361 to 672, but in, in reality, if we get as far as we intend to get today, because we're going pretty in-depth, we will get to lines 535. And part of the reason why this is taking so long to get through a couple of these books is that I'm going back through, I'm coming back through the material which I generally do not uh, lecture on because I consider it more, um, or I considered it in the past, more minor material, uh, less essential to the the plot. But now in um, trying to provide the entirety of the Iliad, as well as with analysis, I'm, I'm actually finding this material very much rich in detail and rich in information. And, well, hopefully we all benefit from uh, those mining efforts uh, today. All right, so just as dualities were big in the last lecture, recall, uh, heck, um, excuse me, uh, Zeus and Poseidon, uh, the order of heaven and the order on earth coming from the one source, Kronos. Um, uh, recall also Poseidon's two homes, uh, his home on the mountain, as well as his home beneath the waters, indicating a full perspective. Um, and also the way down is the way up, sort of like Dante suggests that the further down you can go into the netherworld or chaos of human experience, and the further you can then transcend by going not only above where you have gotten to by getting back to normal, but also going the uh, equidistance up. So <laughs> that's a confusing way of saying that in going down through hell, one doubles one's capacity to experience the world because one understands both chaos and order. And that seems to be the perspective of any epic poet who places his hero in the underworld and has to learn a great truth there. And you see that in both the Eastern tradition with uh, Jonah and the whale, the Near Eastern tradition, um, as well as um, in the Western tradition with Odysseus going down to the underworld, Virgil's Aeneas going down to the underworld, Virgil accompanying Dante into the underworld, John Milton locating Satan within the underworld as well. And so in pursuing a duality or a perceived duality, one one creates a larger unity. And, and perceiving the poles or uh, mining the poles of existence, chaos and order, good and evil, one has a fuller perspective on the entire spectrum of being or existence or conscious being. Uh, all right. And so there we go. We had Aeus the Lesser and Aeus the Greater. We had Idomeneus and Marianes um, uh, contrasted. We'll also have an interesting contrast today on the Aristotle on the aristocrats versus the, um, the the plain folk, the more democratic folks, and the advantages that come with being an aristocrat, including that one could, say, be ransomed for one's life if one pleaded appropriately at the appropriate time, and one could also be saved by one's henchmen, uh, which will actually happen today. So also today, keep an eye open for expressive descriptions of the civilian lives of those victims of the war god spear. Those those men who go down beneath the spear of Ares, those men who die and bite the dust. And several men today will actually be described as clawing the dust with their hands as they died. And there will be several brutal kills um, with appended descriptions of who these men were and who their fathers were and often who their young wives were back at home. So showing the fullness of the stories of their lives, though they're a small part of this story, the Iliad, they were an integral part of their own stories, and often these were these were people uh, described as people of value who brought happiness into the lives of others. And so, 
this seemed to su seems to suggest not only a consciousness of a uh, life outside of this particular life in war of a game or activity or way of being that exists outside of this current way of being that seems so important that even the gods are struggling within it. Um, but also, also it suggests that the greatest games uh, or the greatest uh, social conflicts, which are larger abstracted versions of games with their own rules and, uh, and uh, goals uh, within them, well, it suggests that this does tear you out. The greatest games do tear you from the games uh, or the plans, the endeavors, the, an the activities, the relationships which your, your former life entailed and, and that in this world adaptation is required to these changing environments in which we find ourselves and well, this war will be a test to see who can adapt fastest best to this new and ever-changing um, battlefield. And so we'll see several recently married men, at least two of them, go down today. Uh, we'll see the children of fathers and the fathers, uh, in particular, we'll see this happen once. It's very sad and will not be something unknown to other epics that we consider together. In particular, in the Aeneid, there will be a very, very, very sad death where actually a father will require of Aeneas that he promise that his son not die in his care, and Aeneas will take that promise very seriously. And, well, as you might expect, it is impossible to keep that sort of promise in this world if one is not a god. In fact, even the gods cannot prevent the deaths of mortals, as we see in the Iliad. And so, that promise is not made in good faith, or rather, it does not reflect the capacities of man. And so, let's get on with it. Idomeneus, graying though he is, which will come up a couple times, the fact that he's not as young as he once was, attacks and he strikes Othryonius, which is a wonderful name to say, the son-in-law to be of Priam. And this is, a, this is a sad story. And so, recalling our theme that uh, we are going to recall the outside lives of these men as well as the, um, the stories in which they found themselves embedded. In fact, this seems like a very princely story. And this Othryonius seems like quite a fi fine young man because he often offered no bride price to Priam for his young daughter Cassandra, and we'll talk about her in a moment. Um, instead, he offered to help slay and drive the Achaeans back, which Priam accepted on the condition that he actually do it. And so this man is fighting to win the arm of the woman he loves or wishes to be with and uh, has made agreement with the father, and he's very heroic. And, well, he's struck down right at the beginning of his story by a man who's nearing the end of his, or at least getting closer to the end of his, which is itself a minor tragedy within the epic. And, well, a couple notes about Cassandra is that of, of women in Greek mythology, she is one well worth knowing. Um, in fact, in the Iliad alone, she'll experience some tragedy. Uh, the fact that her suitor is here killed She'll also be the first to see Hector's body returned to Troy by Priam, which is a, a, about the most pathetic sight one can possibly imagine in terms of pathos being emotion and emotion grasping, um, because it's an old father restoring uh, the, a dead son from the underworld rather than vice versa, which is the symbol of transformation that Carl Jung and recently Dr. Peterson have put forward, which is that the young man, the hero of light, has to go down into the underworld and restore his father to glory. The young hero has to go through chaos, 
after an old structure of society or way of being has collapsed and no longer serves the current environment and go down into the past in order to revive structure in a new way. So to imprint a, a structure or an immortal form, an isomorphic form with new light, with individual light that now meshes with this situation. Sort of like how music has a pattern at the background, um, which is immediately recognizable about as shared with all other music, but is un completely unique in the pattern, in the specific patterns that the notes form. And so there's an isomorphism which allows for differentiation, which we can appreciate in music. And you might say that the same can be done with all things. Um, actually, um, which is how we can discern. Um, but certainly with this literature, we can do that and with ways to spend time, like listening to this podcast or lecture. All right, and so Cassandra, she will also, beyond having, having to see Hector's body returned, well, after the war, Aias the Lesser will attempt to take her by force, physically in a temple, of Athena, which will end up getting the Achaeans rather cursed, um, cursed very badly, which will lead to a, a disastrous feud between Menelaus and Agamemnon and their final parting from each other, which will forever haunt Menelaus afterwards. Um, and then Cassandra will, in fact, as concubine to Agamemnon, be slaughtered when Agamemnon is slaughtered by his wife, Clytemestra. For his actions on Aulus when he sacrificed their daughter Iphigenia under the pretense that he told to Clytemestra that he was going to marry her to Achilleus and so she had to endure the most exultant feeling a mother possibly could have which is that her daughter is going to marry the most godlike man alive to hearing that her daughter is actually going to be sacrificed in order to get favorable wins for a war. It's going to go from living a wonderful life of beautiful offspring and top of the dominance hierarchy existence to losing life completely. Such an upsetting of expectations completely ruins the relationship between Clytemestra and Agamemnon forever and makes her susceptible to the wiles of Aegisthus, who we mentioned in the last lecture, who will end up planting the seed in her mind the idea that perhaps Agamemnon deserves to die and should not be king. And we'll talk quite a bit about that, and surely we'll lecture also on the Oristia, which goes deep into the family dynamics of Agamemnon, uh, the house of Atreus, and the fallout after the Trojan War and his murder. But back, back to the present, which is the past. Idomeneus, after killing Othryonis, and this is something he'll do multiple times uh, today, brags over his corpse, and this is something commonly done by champions. Uh, they talk to you before they kill you, they talk to you after they kill you as well. They, it's like they talk to the soul of the world in order to record on the black box, which is the memories of poets. And so, uh, in paraphrase from lines 13, 375 to 383, Come join me by the ships. We'll find we'll find someone for you to marry now, which, <laughs> which is pretty funny, indicating that he he and all the Achaeans understand that Othryoneus uh, is fighting in order to win a new wife, and so he he essentially, uh, in paraphrase, he essentially 
is joking over the dead body. Hey, now that you're dead, you can come back to our ships and maybe we can find a good uh, daughter of Agamemnon or Menelaus uh, to give to you. Well, you would have a good old time. It's it's actually, I, I mean, it's very much macabre, but I think it's pretty funny. Well, as Idomeneus is attempting to strip this man, Asios comes to his aid and, well, he's hit beneath the chin by Idomeneus and he's one of the men who claws the dust as he dies. And then his charioteer tries to intervene, but Antilochus steps up and kills him and so now we're into the fray. Deiphobos, recall, the brother of Paris and Hector, uh, who's potentially traitor, which we'll talk about later, approaches in sorry and sorrow for Asios, and he'll be one of those minor champions who really steps up here. He is, uh, I would say, something like the fourth strongest Trojan. Hector being the strongest, Sarpedon being second, Aeneas being third, um, and um, Deiphobos being somewhere around fourth, Paris potentially even being uh, fifth, uh, with Agenor around there somewhere in that conversation. And so Deiphobos is um, going to be one of those strong minor characters that gets a, a strong lead today. Idomeneus as well, Marianes, and of course Antilochus who just went. Uh, names that we know well, champions and captains, but uh, not near the same fame as say Achilles or Hector or Sarpedon or um, uh, Diomedes or Odysseus or Aias, uh, the greater or lesser. And so Deiphobus approaches in sorrow for Asios. That means he's motivated by an emotion. And being motivated by an emotion during these fight scenes is like being motivated by a god. It means that there's a powerful motive force that charges the warrior's being and self-expression on the battlefield. That they, It's almost as if they glow. They are stronger, more willful, more courageous, more, uh, more willing to uh, subject themselves to the form of warrior, more berserker-like in terms of uh, how berserkers are described as um, invincible warriors who shrug off pain because of their powerful motivational force uh and it says they're described as almost mindless in their violence but uh this is almost uh this the same the same uh in terms of not having the usual self-consciousness that um that not being overwhelmed by emotion provides one when one is overwhelmed by like say sorrow or anger on the battlefield one loses one's fear of death uh, that fear is replaced, as it were, and so one is motivated to move in a different direction. And so Deiphobos takes aim for Idomeneus, but he strikes Hypsenor instead. And this is another major theme. When a champion misses a target, he often hits somebody who is close to that champion. And that means that that actually has a literal physical meaning in terms of uh, it's often the charioteer or friend or close ally of the champion that's actually why that person would be close to the champion and someone who is therefore emotionally close to the champion and so uh the metaphor seems to be again i'm using the word macabre for the second time one of aiming at the stars and still having a strong effect if not desired effect you know aim for the stars and you end up uh you know near the moon or aiming for the moon and end up amongst the stars it's just because they aim so high, they still end up hitting something very much worth hitting, and that is usually the body of uh, one of their opponents, which adds to their glory and uh, serves to enrage and sometimes stupefy the champions against wh whom one is fighting, as well as imprint one on their mind, which makes one part of the legend, which all these Achaeans, especially the champions, 
are continually uh, aiming for. And so, Hipsonor is dragged off, still moaning, and uh, I've heard the claim made by scholars that men aren't allowed to suffer in the Iliad, and uh, I'd say that is sort of true. It's more that they're not described as suffering, because what happens here is I would, I would consider this strong counter-evidence to the contrary, because Hipsonor is struck between the midriff and the he's struck underneath the navel in the liver, it said. And, well, if you're struck in the liver, then that which is being processed by the liver escapes and poisons one's bloodstream. So he's, he's being dragged off groaning, and he's, he's never going to feel any better than he does right now. He's going to die very soon. And, uh, but he is going to suffer a little bit uh, before that happens. And so it's not exactly the case that everybody always gets a very clean and quick death in Homer, and it's it's also not the case that he's trying to make one endure these details to be uh, to indulge in the grotesque, but rather just to indicate the reality of the situation he is trying to represent um, accurately. And so Hipsnor will soon die, but is not yet dead. And just to add to the sadness of that is the fact that he's described as the son of a good man who was a shepherd of the people, Hippasos, um, which means that his father his father helped to gather people, helped to order people, and that his son, by, by association, by the transitive property, by perhaps even genealogical properties, would be seen to be a good man or would be potentially a good man himself. And so, in war, good men on both sides uh, who bring happiness to the lives of those around them and are of good use are, are die as pawns in the movements of forces far beyond themselves. Um, or at least forces that have grown far beyond themselves. And so, Idomeneus responds. He kills Alcathoos, and Alcathoos also has an extended description about the beauty of and wit of his recent bride. And he's described as being beaten down by Poseidon through Idomeneus, which suggests that he's actually killed by necessity, or the order of nature which is uh, embodied by the superior strength and skill of Idomeneus, and which is a common theme throughout the Iliad through the stories of Heracles, who embodies skill and primitive, or primitive skill and strength, uh, primary skill and strength, as in he had the tools necessary and the strength necessary to impose his will on the world around him, and that is what kills Alcathoos, and that is what kills man in battle and in war lacking the skill or strength to defend himself, thus indicating that those are the primary uh, building blocks upon which society is built, skill and strength, because if you lack those, you will not be able to maintain or stabilize a society. And so that is precisely what Poseidon represents as well as the embodiment of the heavenly order on earth. And that is what Idomeneus embodies too, and he'll, he'll actually mention the fact that um, he is he is um, descended from King Minos, the archetypal king, the son of great Zeus, that he he is from the line of Zeus as king. And well, I'll get into that in a moment. So another way to think about skill and strength is their relationship uh, is when they're bound together by proper aim. 
And that you might consider essentially the holy trinity, the perfect isomorphism, and, and why this current war is happening. Because if you look at the gods which embody these traits, skill, Athena, strength, Zeus, that which maintains order, being strength, and can cause chaos, and proper aim, Apollo, you see that Apollo and Athena find themselves squarely on different sides, with Zeus having been neutral at first, but now currently helping the Trojans in order to help the Achaeans. And so when these three gods do not share uh, their skill, strength, and proper aim altogether, that's when there exists conflict in uh, on the world. And so, um, segueing back to, back to the, the beaten path of the story, um, another tragic piece about Alcathoos is that he is son-in-law to Anchises. Or rather, I wouldn't say this is so much tragic so much as the next plot piece is that since he is son-in-law to Anchises, Anchises, Anchises is the, is the father of Aeneas. And so that means that um, Alcathoos was the husband to Hippodamea, who was the sister of Aeneas. And so when Aeneas finds out through Deiphobos that in fact his uh, brother-in-law has been struck down, well, that's going to be a family blood issue, which means he's going to become enraged which means he's going to be extremely motivated to fight and kill Idomeneus, which will be an extraordinary fight because Idomeneus, we know, is amongst the most legitimate leaders of the Achaeans. In fact, he brings the, some of the most ships with 80, and he comes from the line of Zeus and Crete, and so is related to the first king of Greece, a Greece that's not even yet named. And Aeneas is sort of the archetypal illegitimate leader. In fact, one of the things we'll hear about in just a moment, and I'll, I'll actually read it to you now, lines 458 to 461, is that, And in the division of his heart, this way seemed best to him to go for Aeneas. He found him at the uttermost edge of the battle standing, since he was forever angry with brilliant Priam. Because great as he was, he did him no honor among his people. Lines 13 or 458 to 461 in line in book 13. And so Aeneas feels dishonored by the legitimate king, and so he is a figure of legitimate uh, leadership capability, subjected or uh, not recognized or actively or willfully ignored by the current old king to the detriment of the current old king. And so the fact that Idomeneus is a more actualized version of what uh, Aeneas wishes to be, and Aeneas is, a, in fact, a much younger man than Idomeneus will be interesting, because if Idomeneus wins this conflict with Aeneas, that will indicate the older generation uh, 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 eating the younger generation, a Cronian move, like Kronos eating the siblings of Zeus. Whereas if Aeneas defeats Idomeneus, there will be some indication that the younger generation, even on the improper side, uh, but what is the proper side when uh, Aeneas has the appropriate skills necessary to embody leadership? There is no side there. Um, if he can win that, then the next generation will be becoming stronger than the generation before. And in fact, that would help Aeneas's claim, in fact, that he is a legitimate authority and should be a legitimate authority amongst the Trojan troops because of his capacity to defeat a major Achaean leader and to form people behind him. And so we'll have to see 
exactly how it is that battle goes when we get there. <laughs> and so I would feel remiss if I didn't give if I didn't give the description of the death of Alcathos because of all the descriptions, I would say this is amongst this is the most brutal I I have seen uh, this time around reading the Iliad. And so, <clears throat> again, uh, the representation seeks to accurately uh, portray the reality that Homer uh, would have known or was seeking to rep was seeking to um, uh, embody in language here. So, Idomeneus stabbed at the middle of his chest with the spear and broke the bronze armor about him, which in time before had guarded his body from destruction. So we're also seeing a moment of uh, a change of attitude from hope to despair, because uh, how he's looked at the world is, is completely changing, because he saw himself as acting in a way within the world that would lead to adaptive, adaptive success, but the fact that he's now going to die means that he has made the wrong choice. Um, he cried out then, a great cry, broken the spear in him, and fell thunderously, and the spear in his heart was stuck fast, but the heart was panting still and beating to shake the butt end of the spear. Then and there, Ares the Huge took his life away from him. Book 13, lines 438 to 444. And then Idomeneus brags over his body. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Idomeneus strikes uh, uh, Alcathos within the heart. Uh, and the, the butt of the spear continues to, to bounce up and down with the beating of the heart as Alcathos uh, dies. Um, and so somebody who was so readily identifiable and... Um, and had such an important place within the life that he knew beforehand is out of nowhere taken by Ares just like any other person could be, like a like a blade of grass that falls beneath a hunter's sandal or boot in our case. And so part of it Omenia's bragging here is Deiphobos after after Deiphobos killed um Hypsenor, he brags to Idomeneus, I'm sorry that I don't actually have that here, uh that Deiphobos had bragged, well, for your one man, I've got one man. And so Idomeneus now says, oh, yes, your, your one man, Hypsenor, for my Othrionius, Asios, and now Alcathos, three to one. Is that what you call fair? Is that what you call being tied, Deiphobos? And so this is a rather brutal and most dangerous game that they seem to be playing, indicating that humans do have that play instinct which Jacques Pengsep found. Uh, in rats that we share with rats, and also that even in a most brutal situation, a game structure can come to being which gives one capacity to hope and a goal towards which one to aim. And so uh, war is the most dangerous game, and then one comp is competing against the most dangerous humans with very much the most dangerous technologies of the times with uh, competing goals uh, setting uh, two sides completely against each other, and that is precisely what war was at this time. Um, and so, then Idomeneus claims descent from Zeus through King Minos, the first king of Crete, Deucalion, and uh, then to Idomeneus. So it's, he's only two generations removed from Zeus. And uh, something about that is that um, 
why Zeus would have been the father of Minos and of human civilization uh, on Crete is that where he was born, or rather where he was hidden by his mother, um, by the Cabaroi, uh, the, the not very well-known nymphs of, uh, of Mount Ida that Goethe made so, so big a deal of, bragging to his, his friend Eckerman of his knowledge, his superior knowledge of mythology because of his knowledge of the Cabaroi and the mothers. And, um, and we can talk about that in detail later, probably with Mr. Chance, Mr. West Chance. But since Zeus was born on Mount Ida and often retreats to Mount Ida, he, the humans on Mount, uh, from Crete, on which Ida is located, have descended from him, and he has a heavy influence there. And so King Minos, as his son, his human son in the world, is the embodiment of his royal lineage in the world, of his kingly order in the world. So whereas Poseidon represents the royal order as it's embodied in the world on a universal aspect, a king embodies the royal or the, the heavenly order of Zeus in embodying Zeus's aspect as king or person who himself embodies the dominance hierarchy and maintains it and is at the top of it all at once. And that is precisely what a king is. A symbol of the unity with the circle, a symbol of the that which binds the unity together, which is the gold of the circle, which means uh, the god or the leading idea, and also uh, the scepter or the club by which one uh, indicates the top-down authority and also the capacity to, to observe and maintain that story or, or that, um, uh, that stability, that, um, uh, uh, that hierarchy by using the uh, gilded club, as it were, which is what law is. Um, and so this, uh, this, uh, this vaunting and this um, mentioning of royal lineage, it, it, it intimidates Deiphobos, and it intimidates him to the, to the point of having conflict within his heart. And he thinks, do I try this man alone, which is his second thought, by the way, or do I grab some companions to try and help against him? And of course, he goes with his first thought. And who is the first person he goes to seek? Well, he makes a very intelligent uh, decision here. He chooses to go find Aeneas. And why is Aeneas an excellent choice? Well, in part, because he now has good reason to hate and fight with full conviction against Idomeneus, uh, because Idomeneus has just killed his brother-in-law. Uh, that is, of course, assuming that he likes his brother-in-law, but he, he does, it turns out. Uh, though I suppose that would have been a small risk, but even honor would have dictated, even if he didn't like his brother-in-law, to, uh, to uh, look for a, bro a blood price. And he's not going to be talking, so he's not going to be looking for that blood price to be paid out in money, but rather in actual blood. Uh, blood for blood as representation rather than gold for blood. And we, we can talk later on about... Um, whether both are themselves representations. Is blood for blood really that different, symbolically speaking, from money for blood? If blood is considered that which you use during your time uh, in order to labor, in order to produce income, which is a calcified um, form of blood and therefore labor. And um, we can talk about the abstraction that leads from labor becoming uh, sim. Sim symbolized by currency as uh, embodied or dead labor. Which essentially, uh, 
currency in the same way as culture therefore embodies the dead souls of the past um, in being the labor that has been done, not the labor which is currently being done, and the source of value that has been added rather than that which is being added, and thus not that which transforms the world, but that which is evidence of that which has transformed the world. And so money is, like culture in that sense, somewhat atavistic. Um, and so that's what Aeneas is struggling against with old Priam. Priam as a the old king making the unwise decisions which will lead to the fall of his people. And Aeneas here springing up to the greatest possible challenges uh, with the noblest possible intent behind him, attempting to uh, uh, show his legitimacy as leader and fighter, uh, fighting against those atavistic tendencies. And so I, I already read this quote, and in the division of his heart, this way seemed, seemed best for him to go for Aeneas. And he found him, and he's always angry at Priam because he was done no honor amongst his people. And so this will actually be great. Um, the fact that brilliant Priam, great as he is, does no honor to Aeneas, uh, indicating since Aeneas is of tremendous value, which he will soon prove, and will prove, of course, in the Aeneid by leading the people of Priam as the chosen one, um, insofar as Priam does not do honor to Aeneas. This reflects very poorly on the leadership cap capabilities of Priam, just as his decision to honor Paris's um, absconding of Helen and not returning her reflects poorly on his leadership abilities, uh, which also leads into one's understanding of Hector's mistakes in relation to his personal um, advisor, Puladamas, and the mistakes he makes, like uh, allowing Dolon to be his traitor, um, that these mistakes seem to run in the family, that it's understandable that Hector would make mistakes because even his father, the wise Priam, makes mistakes and uh, perhaps the person who most legitimately should rule based on leadership capability, Aeneas, well, he won't have the opportunity to until um, the river Xanthos is clogged with men and runs red with blood. And so, something about Aeneas very interesting is that later on in the text, he'll come across Achilleus when Achilleus returns to the fight, which he certainly will do. And Poseidon will notice this and think, oh no, if Achilleus fights Aeneas, Achilleus will win. And that means Achilleus will kill Aeneas, but there's a prophecy that Zeus is told that Aeneas must survive this war in order to lead on the remnants of the Trojans. And so... Zeus loves the Trojans, and so that means he will love Aeneas and does not want him to die. And he asks, Poseidon directly asks Hera and Athena to intervene on the behalf of Aeneas because of this prophecy, knowing that the will of Zeus um, would be supervened or intervened on in this uh, case, supervened, and, um, and that that would lead to bad conflicts in the world and for all the gods. But Hera and Athena say that they hate the Trojans so much that they will not even defend the will of Zeus. They will not even uh, they will not even embody the will of fate. So do they hate Trojans, indicating their their profoundly feminine feminine and poisonous hate, uh, forever directed towards their enemy, the Trojans. And Poseidon Poseidon will then end up with the help of Apollo saving Aeneas. He will he will defend him. He will make him 
disappear from Achilles and then Apollo will embody Aeneas and lead Achilles away from the sky and gates of Troy, saving the lives of many, at least for the moment. And so, Aeneas continues to be an interesting character, too, because in a couple of ways just mentioned, he is something of a precursor to the figure of Jesus. Because on the one hand, he's been saved by love, uh, Aphrodite, and Apollo, god of light, um, and bringer of the sun every day, so resurrecting God, dying and resurrecting God. Well, Aeneas has died and been resurrected too, in a way. He had his hip crushed by Diomedes and was healed by Apollo and returned to the fighting. So in a way, he's been resurrected by the resurrecting and healing God. And insofar as Apollo is going to imitate the form of Aeneas later in the text and lead Achilles away from where the real fight is, one might say that Aeneas is embodying Apollo, or the son of the father, God, bringer of light and the world consciousness in this fight. And so, so let's lay it out like this. As well as Apollo resurrecting and imitating Aeneas in the face of Achilles makes him out to be a precursor to Jesus as the re resurrected embodiment of light in the world like the sun every day, which is not seen for the worth it clearly shines forth by the ruling authorities of the time, so he, li so he lives in conflict and creates the conditions for the kingdom of heaven, the Rome to be, the new living Troy, embodiment of the eternal heavenly city. So seen at, at that level of analysis, Aeneas shares in many of the qualities of, say, the, the later figure of Jesus. He, he, he is not seen for the worth that he has, which is embodied by the ruling authority of Jesus' time, actually wanting to kill the first sons of people and the fact that he had to be born in a manger and the, the people in the church would attempt to throw him out, but he would throw the money changers out. And then, of course, his ultimate reward being crucified, not particularly um, a worthy treatment of a god or a person. And so, so Aeneas is also not seen for the value he has by Aeneas by uh, Priam, the ruling authority of this time. And just as the idea of Jesus is that he opens the gates of paradise in Dante's Paradiso, um, this is something Dante explicitly says, and which is a great thing to say because, of course, this is Good Friday, the day on which Jesus supposedly died, and we're mentioning Dante, which Dante's imaginary vision, of course, uh, of the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso starts on Good Friday and goes through to Sunday. And then, of course, it's in the world right now in 2018, Good Friday, and we are mentioning this story. And so what a, what a beautiful triple parallelism there. And so just as Jesus in going through hell and opening the gates of heaven, again, another going down to go up, notion of expansion of consciousness, of taking the light into the darkness, and then elevating the light even uh, higher, um, and thus creating the kingdom of heaven, or the ideal of the kingdom of heaven by embodying the ideal of the kingdom of heaven. Um, uh, that's the idea that uh, Jesus uh, uh, brings forth, but Aeneas also embodies a kingdom 
of heaven of sorts, or at least one that's sort of represented as the kingdom of heaven by Augustine, and that's the uh, that's the city or uh, nation of Rome. Because Aeneas, in leading the remnant Trojans after the Trojan War, off for seven years and then through a three-year-long war with the Latins, he is the progenitor of the line of Mars that will come to be through the Vesal uh, Virgin who uh, has who consummates her love with Mars and has the two children, Romulus and Remus, who are suckled on the she-wolf, who and Romulus, of course, in killing his brother Remus, very similar to a uh, Cain and Abel, and actually very, very similar in that it's supposedly because Remus jumps over, and one of the stories, which I find most interesting, uh, is that it's because in building the walls of Rome, not yet named, while they were still short, Remus jumps over them, and Romulus strikes him dead and says, thus always to those who jump over the walls of Rome, which would, of course, end up being true for uh, Caesar um, crossing the Rubicon. And uh, But the idea being that while his efforts were still small and weak, his brother could supersede him, and similar to Cain, um, being denied the favor of the divine and one of the popular interpretations of this, I think one of the more interesting ones is that this is because the sacrifice of Cain was unworthy of his talents, that he didn't give as much as he could have, so he didn't reap as much fruit as he could have, and so that created that sort of cognitive dissonance within him where he felt uh, angry at the structure of reality because he was really angry at himself because he knew that he didn't get the outcome that he truly desired because he didn't act in accordance with his true desire and ideal. And so instead of trying to embody his ideal and improving, he kills his ideal. And that's represented by Abel, who does get what he wants. And how we can uh, try and destroy our ideals tr through trying to destroy the people who embody our ideals. It's a common motif throughout, I would say, both mythology and, and history. And so the basic argument from a broad level of analysis is that Aeneas is an unrecognized, soon-to-be king who's going to bring about a new people uh, who are brought together by a new ideal, which is the notion of bringing about a new uh, civilization or a new religion, a new state or a secular space or a new sacred space, so a new kingdom of Rome or a new kingdom of heaven, which is in fact in the works of St. Augustine, he contrasts the city of Rome in the city of hell, uh, in the city of heaven, or the paradisal city and the um, earthly city, and how how they are supposed to reflect each other, like a rainbow in a dewdrop. And so I knew this was going to happen. We've gone a little long here, and we haven't even gotten to some of the major fights in Book 13, but we'll just certainly do that over the next few days. Seeing as it's Easter weekend, and we've been making these references to Easter and bringing about new things from old things, well, it's time for us to spring forth and bring forth uh, as much as we can this weekend as well. And so tomorrow we'll start with Aeneas charging at Enominius. All right. I hope you've enjoyed these in-depth analyses. I hope you're continuing to really love what we're doing here. We're about to get to episode 50, and well, you know, we're about uh, three months into a 50-year-long project now, so tune in now, and well, you'll have something to pay attention to that'll edify you for the rest of your life. It's been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. See you next time.